Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. First, on every single tier, you get completely ad-free episodes. And you get a say in what topics I cover on my podcasts. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, canadaehx.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. I also want to say thank you to Jonathan D., who left me a wonderful donation. I would like to mention that all Patreon support and all donations this month will be going to the SBCA. I'm going to be doing this in honor of my best pal, Boris, who sadly passed away last week. And I wanted to do something to honor him, and I thought this would be a good choice. Canada reached its 10th anniversary this year, and it had been quite the first decade for the new country. And this year, there were several notable, tragic, and amazing events that would happen in this anniversary year for Canada. On January 2nd, Jonathan McCulley would pass away. Considered to be a father of Canadian Confederation, he used his newspapers to promote the union of the country. After Canada became a country, he was rewarded for his efforts with an appointment to the Canadian Senate in 1870, serving until his death. On January 5th, Edgar Nelson Rhodes, future Premier of Nova Scotia, would be born. He would serve as Premier from 1925 to 1930, and prior to this he served in the House of Commons from 1908 to 1921, a time in which he would also serve as the Speaker of the House of Commons. 
he would be appointed as a senator, serving from 1935 to 1942, when he passed away at the age of 65. On February 28th, the University of Manitoba would be founded and was the first university in Western Canada. Still operating to this day, it boasts almost 30,000 students and is the largest university in Manitoba and the 17th largest in Canada. The university has had 98 Rhodes Scholars, more than any other university in Western Canada, and several notable people have graduated from the university including a Nobel Prize winner, several members of Parliament, and even a few Premiers of Manitoba. It was here in 1970 that research at the university led to the creation of canola oil. On May 4th, Charles Wilson would pass away. He was born in 1808 and, as a young man, established a hardware store in Montreal, which became very successful. He would then serve as a city councillor for Montreal from 1848 to 1849 and from 1850 to 1852. He also served as the mayor of Montreal from 1851 to 1854. In 1852, he became a member of the Legislative Council of the Province of Canada, and after Confederation, he was appointed to the Senate of Canada, where he would remain until his death. On June 20th, the Great Fire of St. John, New Brunswick would erupt. The fire started when a spark fell into a bundle of hay at a storehouse. Within nine hours, the fire would spread and destroy 200 acres of the city, including 1,612 buildings. Eight churches, six banks, 14 hotels, 11 ships, and four wood boats would also be destroyed. In addition, 19 people would lose their lives. The Ottawa Daily Citizen would write, quote, The terrible fire that has reduced to ashes the business portion of the commercial metropolis of New Brunswick is one of the most disastrous to have ever taken place in Canada, end quote. The Kingston British Whig would say of the fire, quote, This afternoon at half past two, a fire broke out in McLaughlin's boiler shops. A strong northwesterly wind was blowing at the time, and in an incredibly short space of time, the flames burst out, carrying with them hundreds of houses, stores, and lumber yards. End quote. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs, like Dr. Peter Henderson Price, giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples have already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster-Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On August 5th, Tom Thompson was born in Claremont, Ontario. He would enter into a machine shop apprenticeship in 1899 through a close friend of his father. Soon after, he was fired for constantly being late. That same year, he attempted to fight in the Second Boer War, but was turned away due to a medical condition. In 1901, he would go to business college in Chatham and would drop out eight months later and travel to Seattle, where he would join his brother in operating a business school. Three years later, he returned to Canada. In Ontario, Thompson joined the Legg brothers and began photo engraving for them. In 1908, he joined up with Grip Limited and started working on artistic design. 
It was there he would work with several of the group of seven, and he would remain with the company until 1912, when he left to join another artist firm. That same year, he traveled to Algonquin Park, and it was there that he would find a major source of inspiration for his paintings. He began working with several artists that year, who would form the group of seven. One year later, his art was displayed at the Ontario Society of Artists, and he would join the organization in 1914, and his work would continue to be exhibited there until his death. Also in 1914, the National Gallery of Canada began to acquire his paintings, and this would change his entire life. He would begin living and working with fellow artists, and would spend most of his time at Algonquin Park, working as a firefighter, ranger, and guide. He disliked the work, though, due to the fact it didn't leave him enough time to paint. For the next three years, he would produce some of the best-known Canadian artwork, including the Jack Pine, the West Wind, and the Northern River. Completely self-taught as an artist, his most creative period would be from 1914 to 1917, when James McCallum served as his patron so he could continue to make art without needing to have a full-time job. Much of his artwork of this time has been compared to that of Vincent van Gogh. Sadly, the world would only have him as a full artist for three years until 1917. It was on July 8, 1917 that he disappeared during a canoeing trip on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park. His body was found just over one week later. And upon examination of the body, it was found that he had drowned and the drowning was accidental. But with his death, many began to wonder if there was more to it than just drowning. Some theorize that he committed suicide or was even murdered. Some theories say that suicide was over a woman or due to what he felt was a lack of artistic recognition. Other theories say he was killed by poachers at the park or was in a fight with two men living at Canoe Lake. We'll have a chance to talk with Judge Little at length. Judge Little, your book is a fascinating one and it raises some very interesting questions. And because it does raise so many questions that you personally have put forward, I wonder if you yourself personally believe that there was foul play in connection with this man's death. Well, yes, I do. I believe that circumstantial evidence, however, is the only thing we have to uh, support it. No one uh, alive today, uh, or indeed uh, in recent years, uh, really has, any, has thrown any light on this. So I assume that it's like a large jigsaw puzzle, and uh, I think that the evidence is sufficient to warrant the assumption that it was foul play. Is there any move that could be made at this date that might either confirm or deny that kind of supposition? Well, I hardly think that there could be any evidence on earth in respect to whether he was murdered or not that hasn't already been uh, put forward and advanced. However, there are things that could be done to establish the second point in the mystery, and that is, where is the body? We don't, in my opinion, know definitely. Uh, it, is, it, it has been supposed that he has been buried where the family eventually wanted him buried, but that could only be proved by them having a look at in that grave. Has there been any interest shown by the remaining family in doing that? No, the only member of the family who was, uh, showed any interest was George Thompson, the, the late George Thompson, who was the elder brother of Tom. And after a number of discussions with him in which I revealed all the information I had, he uh, conceded that I had enough grounds to warrant an investigation, particularly after he had uh, written a letter to the undertaker to whom he'd given directions in 1917 to exhume the body, and he wasn't satisfied with the answer he got. And he said, however, that he felt that there was one condition if such a venture was take, to take place, and that was that he wanted the other members of the family to be contacted and their consent obtained. Uh, this was pretty nearly impossible for me at that time. Uh, the family were far spread in Seattle and down in uh, 
Carolinas and other places, and I just had no way that I could go down. And this was something you would have to do personally. You couldn't send a letter to a person. This was also the year that Treaty 6 was signed. Negotiations were planned for the fall of 1877, but the Blackfoot were skeptical. They had not had negotiations with the federal government, but some of their leaders had signed a treaty with the United States in 1855, and most of the promises outlined in that treaty were not fulfilled. Representing the government this time was David Laird, the new Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories, and James McLeod, the Commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police. The Indigenous involved did not see the treaty negotiations as a surrender of land, but a peace treaty, which they would allow settlement, but they would be allowed to cohabitate on the land in peace. Negotiations would begin on September 19, 1877 at Blackfoot Crossing. Laird spoke to the Indigenous outlining the positive aspects of the government, which included ending the Whiskey Forts. He added that the bison would soon be gone and the Indigenous need to switch to ranching and agriculture, and the government would support them in that. The Indigenous wanted the right to hunt and fish on their traditional lands, as well as payments and other items similar to Treaty 4. One old chief, who was not identified, stated, quote, I am very old. I am like a child. All I ask of the great white mother is that this place where we are now may remain quiet as it is at present, that no building be raised upon it, but that we may live here in peace. End quote. Following initial speeches and negotiations, talks ended while the gathered groups waited for the arrival of the Canae. The federal government group gave out rations of beef and flour to everyone present, but Crowfoot refused to take any, stating he wanted no favors until he had decided what to do regarding the treaty. Negotiations ended on September 21st when Red Crow, the leader of the Kinney, arrived. After speaking with Crowfoot, Red Crow decided to agree to the terms. On September 22nd, the Indigenous agreed to the terms and the treaty was signed. Every man, woman, and child were given $12 and an annual payment of $25 per chief was approved, as well as $15 per minor chief and $5 for all others. All the chiefs would receive a Winchester rifle, while the head chiefs would also receive a medal and a flag to commemorate the treaty. Chiefs would also receive a new suit of clothing every three years, and the government also agreed to pay the salaries of teachers on reserve and provide $2,000 worth of ammunition each year. The land agreed to in the treaty covers from Red Deer, Alberta, down to the U.S. border, to the Rocky Mountains, and east to Medicine Hat. The largest communities in that treaty area are Calgary and Lethbridge, and in all, a total of 517,000 square kilometers was taken by the Canadian government, which is larger than the country of Spain. In September 1877, Lord Dufferin became the first Governor-General to visit Manitoba. While in Manitoba with his wife Lady Dufferin, they would each drive a spike into the line of the still-in-construction Canadian Pacific Railway. To honour them, the first engine of the railway was named the Lady Dufferin. The Brantford newspaper would write, quote, The visit to the Northwest will form one of the brightest pages in the history of Manitoba. If the Earl of Dufferin had returned to England without having made this trip to Manitoba, Although he had visited every other province, he would have left North America without having seen the Dominion of Canada, although five years its governor. We feel proud of the honour he has conferred upon us." End quote. During his visit, he would take a canoe trip down the Winnipeg River. It would be reported, quote, The Viceregal Party returned to Winnipeg on Saturday afternoon. The canoe trip down the Winnipeg River was much enjoyed. They visited Gimli yesterday and were warmly welcomed by the Icelanders. Stormy weather was experienced on the lake. End quote. On December 18th, James Allison Glenn was born in Scotland, where he would receive his education before coming to Canada in 1911 and settling in Winnipeg. In 1926, he would be elected to the House of Commons as a Liberal Progressive, and he would lose his seat in 1930 but regain it in 1935. 
1945, he would become the Speaker of the House. Then, after 1945, he would be appointed as the Minister of Mines and Resources, where he remained until 1948 when he retired after a heart attack. He would pass away in 1950. Some events are important, but no date was specifically given. Manzo Nagano would become the first Japanese immigrant to Canada in 1877. He would become a salmon fisher before taking a job hauling timber onto ships. After returning to Japan in 1884, he would come back in 1892 and open a hotel and store. After a fire destroyed everything he owned in 1922, he moved back to Japan and died there in 1923. Mount Manzo Nagano is named for him, and Keegan Messing, a Canadian Olympic figure skater, is his great-great-grandson. It was also this year that refugees from the Lakota people would enter Canada following the end of the Great Sioux War, hoping to find safety from the American violence against them. Sitting Bull, who had taken refuge with his people in Canada following the Battle of Little Bighorn, would refuse the pardon offer from the United States and choose not to go back to that country. By May of 1877, after following the Frenchman River between Valmarie and Mancoca, Sitting Bull sent an emissary to the Cypress Hills to warn the Northwest Mounted Police about his arrival and requested a meeting with them. Walsh met with Sitting Bull and assured him of the protection in Canada in exchange for peaceful compliance under Canadian law. Sitting Bull presented a medal and stated, quote, My grandfather received this medal in recognition of his battle for George III during the Revolution. Now, in this odd time, I direct my people here to reclaim a sanctuary of my grandfather. End quote. Walsh asked Sitting Bull if he would turn over items taken in battle from the soldiers that died at Little Bighorn, which Sitting Bull complied with. Walsh then had those items returned to the families of the soldiers. The two men would grow close, developing a friendship and a mutual respect for each other over the course of 1877. Walsh would assure Sitting Bull of protection from the Americans as long as the Sioux obeyed Canadian laws, and Walsh, for his part, truly felt that the Sioux had been mistreated in the United States. Eventually, 5,000 Sioux were in the area, and the Wood Mountain Northwest Mounted Police Post was established, with 22 officers serving there. And by all accounts, the first year for Sitting Bull and his people was quite good. They found bison and were able to rest in peace. The Americans did come to Canada, though, to try and convince Sitting Bull and his people to return to the United States. Three American emissaries were imprisoned by the Sioux, but Walsh was able to convince Sitting Bull to let them leave. Commissioner McLeod, where are the rest of your men? You've got more men back there than I have in the whole of Western Canada. Yeah, but Sitting Bull held a war dance last night. General Terry, in Canada, Sitting Bull has kept the Queen's peace. He's agreed to meet with you. And Spotted Eagle. That face doesn't look ready to come back to the States without a fight. Uh President Hayes says you will be received kindly and... The Grandmother's Medicine House is no place for lies. Not two more words. This country does not belong to you. We will stay here and keep the Grandmother's peace. She will let us raise our children. We do not want lies. These men, Walsh, McLeod, they're the first white men who, who never lied to us. I didn't know then that they'd be starved out of Canada and go back to the States. Walsh would resign over it, and Sitting Bull would be murdered. In the United States, Sitting Bull's name was growing in prominence as newspapers reported on him, touting him as the mastermind of Custer's demise, and he gained fame being described as the last holdout of the Indian Wars. After meeting with Sitting Bull, Northwest Mounted Police Commissioner Atchison Irvine would state, quote, His speech showed him to be a man of wonderful capability, and I was much impressed. End quote. It was also this year that work continued on the Transcontinental Railway, 
with surveyors covering 19,000 square kilometers of countryside through the Canadian Shield, with 800 men working on surveys by 1877. Sanford Fleming would write of the surveyors, quote, Many of those we were obliged to take, subsequent events proved, were unequal to the very arduous labor they had to undergo, causing a very considerable delay and difficulty in pushing the work, end quote. Fleming would also write, quote, The whole country along the line of projected survey, embracing an extent of not far short of 1,000 miles, being densely wooded and without a road or trail of any description, made the prosecution of the work unusually difficult, end quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1877. Next week, we're looking at, of course, 1878. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to Canada ehx.com and clicking donate and i also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons and i apologize if i get any names incorrect robert dutt tom leback elizabeth brookman christy s martin strache sarah white tom mcmillan mike sullivan wendy mills kaylin pringitz michael matthews joanna parker jeff Dahl, vobs robert page richard t Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Halbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.